Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The Mar-a-Lago raid affidavit unsealed. It's heavily redacted, but we'll tell you what it does reveal about the search of former President Trump's home. Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg says the FBI led Facebook to censor the Hunter Biden laptop story. NTD speaks with a Facebook whistleblower to get his analysis. The Federal Reserve signals that it will continue restrictive policies in order to tame inflation. What the chair says about potential rate hikes and about what American families could face next. All D.C. kids aged 12 and up will have to get vaccinated against COVID-19 if they want to attend school this year. And the mayor says there won't be a remote learning option. Many universities now allow students to anonymously report others for speech that offends them. Critics say it puts freedom of speech in danger. Pornography, an addiction and a disturbing industry that's eager to keep what goes on behind the scenes secret. An advocate against sex trafficking and an addiction recovery coach walk us through the reality. A federal judge unsealed a heavily redacted affidavit that led to the FBI's raid of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. The Justice Department justified the raid in the affidavit. In the affidavit unsealed on Friday, DOJ prosecutors argued there is probable cause to believe that documents containing classified national defense information and presidential records remain at the premises. It goes on to say, accordingly, this affidavit seeks authorization to search the 45 office and all storage rooms and any other rooms or locations where boxes or records may be stored within the premises. But because of the redactions, it's unclear what allegedly classified documents and presidential records were being kept there and why the DOJ believed it necessary to raid Trump's home for those materials. U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, who approved the search warrant for the FBI earlier this month, unsealed the affidavit. Former White House aide Cash Patel recently said that the seized materials had to do with the FBI's 2016 crossfire hurricane investigation, which found no evidence that Trump colluded with Russia. Trump reacted to the unsealing of the affidavit on Truth Social, saying, Affidavit heavily redacted. Nothing mentioned on nuclear a total public relations subterfuge by the FBI and DOJ, or our close working relationship regarding document turnover. We gave them much. So far, the DOJ has not explained what exactly they were looking for at Trump's home. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And here to discuss the affidavit and the raid on former President Trump's home is Mike Davis, the founder of the nonprofit Article 3 Project, and a former clerk for Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. I spoke with him earlier today. Mike Davis, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the redacted affidavit used to raid Trump's home has been released. Is there anything new here that we didn't already know? Well, what this does is it further confirms that the, the Biden uh, White House, President Biden, Biden White House, Attorney General Merrick Garland's raid on former President Trump, their their uh, former and future political enemy, was uh, unprecedented, it was unnecessary, and it was unlawful. They were looking at potential violations of three crimes with this raid. They were looking at 
the Espionage Act, uh, Presidential Records Act, or destruction of pre presidential records, or theft of presidential records, or uh, obstruction of the investigations into, into both of those first two potential crimes. The problem is, is that as a matter of law, it was impossible for a president of the United States to violate any of those statutes in the way that he handled classified materials or presidential records. He has an absolute constitutional right to declassify anything he wants in any manner he wants, as confirmed by a 1988 uh, Supreme Court case, Department of the Navy versus Egan. President Trump didn't need to get a bureaucrat's permission at the National Archives before he declassified. He absolutely declassified these records, including, uh, as confirmed by the January 19, 2021 declassification memo on crossfire hurricane records with Russian collusion. President Trump also had the sole legal authority to determine whether these records were personal records that belonged to him or presidential records that belonged to the government, get categorized by the, the bureaucrats at the National Archives, and they can sit back to the former president's library. And so you, these are non-crimes that they're looking at for President Trump. They should not be investigating these at all because it's impossible as a matter of law for President Trump to have violated those two statutes. So any obstruction is is not even possible. You can't obstruct investigations into non-crimes. And so th this is a political witch hunt. It's a political fishing expedition. And I think it's because they're going after the, the Biden administration is trying to get back these crossfire hurricane Russian collusion documents that President Trump declassified and a copy of which he made personal. And these are damning documents. Uh, and the, the Biden administration is fearful that President Trump is going to publicly release them. So would you say it changes anything about the investigation at all? I mean, it just confirms that this is a charade. I mean, th there's, 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 I think everyone expected going into this that, look, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt is biased. He has every incentive, just like the Biden Justice Department, just like this corrupt counter-espionage unit at the FBI, who perpetuated the Russian collusion hoax that now now they're investigating President Trump for for these records all of these people have have the same interest which is covering their tracks hiding from the American people what they did here because it's illegal it's unprecedented it was unnecessary so what do you expect to happen next what I expect to happen next is the Biden administration the Biden Justice Department has to make the determination whether they're going to move forward with charges charges against President Trump. I think when they uh, did this raid, I think they had every intention of, of pursuing charges against President Trump. And I don't think they anticipated this that this raid would blow up so spectacularly in their faces. And so now they have to determine uh, whether they want to go down this path. They, they, they might get some Democrat judge on the D.C. Circuit to go along with these charges. They, they might get the Obama pact uh, or excuse me, D.C. District Court to go along with these uh, uh, charges. They might get the Obama-appointed judge, uh, judges on the D.C. Circuit to go along with these charges, but there is just no way that a Supreme Court is going to let this happen. And I even think that Democrat-appointed justices to the Supreme Court, like Justice Kagan, will not go along with this because this is so much bigger than President Trump. This is about the presidency and his power as commander-in-chief to do his job. All right, Mike Davis, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you, thank you for having me. Mark Zuckerberg says the FBI led Facebook to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 election.
NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a Facebook whistleblower to get his analysis. The Hunter Biden laptop story. On Thursday night, Joe Rogan hit Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg with a tough question. How do you guys handle things when they're a, a big news item that's controversial? Like there was a lot of attention on Twitter during the election because of the Hunter Biden laptop story, the New yeah, York Post. Yeah, we had that too. Yeah, so you guys censored that as well? So we took a different path than Twitter. When the New York Post published the story of the Hunter Biden laptop before the 2020 election, Zuckerberg said the distribution of the story and its ranking in the Facebook news feed was dialed down. I mean, basically, the background here is the FBI, I think, basically came to us, some, some folks on our team, and was like, hey, um, just so you know, like, you should be on high alert. There was, the, we, we thought that there was a lot of Russian propaganda in the 2016 election. We have it on notice that basically there's about to be some kind of dump of, of um, uh, that's similar to that. So just be vigilant. I spoke about the situation with Facebook whistleblower Ryan Hartwig, who is the co-author of Behind the Mask of Facebook, a whistleblower's shocking story of big tech bias and censorship. He went public with Project Veritas and revealed how Facebook was censoring conservatives and influencing elections on a global scale. We bring the game to it could work on the left side. Hartwig then said this about the FBI approaching Facebook. So yeah, the FBI could approach Facebook and, and mention that there is misinformation, but Facebook would have no obligation to act on that because there is no law against it. Now, child pornography, which, which I had to delete and other things, yes, there's, there's laws against that. Hartwig also mentioned how slowly Facebook was adapting to new slang terms that were being used for credit card theft on Facebook's website. So credit card theft is definitely illegal. It was not a high priority. So I don't see why Facebook prioritizing something that's not illegal, which they call misinformation. I understand them wanting to cooperate with the FBI, but it just kind of shows that it was a political move for them to act on that. We reached out to Facebook for comment, but didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry. NTD News. And a disappointing day for anyone hoping for lower interest rates. The Federal Reserve today says they plan to continue a restrictive policy stance and that it means more pain for Americans ahead. NTD's Iris Tau has more. Restoring price stability will take some time. Warning of more economic pain, Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell sends a clear signal that interest rates will stay high, at least before the central bank gets inflation under control. Restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. The tight monetary policy, Powell says, means a weaker job market, slower economic growth and some pain to households and businesses. Powell adds, well, these are unfortunate costs of taming inflation. But a failure to restore price stability would mean far greater pain. Inflation slowed in July as gas prices dropped, with President Biden touting that compared with June. That our economy had 0% inflation in the month of July. It compared with a year ago, it jumped 8.5%. And Powell said Friday, a single month's improvement falls far short of what the committee will need to see before we are confident that inflation is moving down. That's as some economists say the Fed began acting too late and thus is now locked into rate hikes. They were wrong about inflation being transitory and now they, they really you know put themselves in a corner where they have to deliver rate cuts, uh, rate hikes aggressively. 
And Powell did not say if the Fed would continue its massive 75 basis point rate increases after two of them in a row. But officials are expected to approve either a 50 or 75 basis point hike next month. Meanwhile, the Fed will get another month worth of data before it meets again and potentially announces another rate hike in September. The monthly jobs report is due on next Friday, September 2nd, and the consumer price index for the month of August will be out on September 13th. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. And earlier today, I spoke with Daniel Lacaye, a chief economist at Spain-based hedge fund Tresis and author of Escape from the Central Bank Trap. He shares his thoughts on the Fed's latest announcement and the U.S. economy. Daniel Lacaye, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Interest rates look set to rise again after Fed Chair Jerome Powell's speech today. What will that mean for people's day-to-day -day lives and for businesses? Mainly for businesses, it means uh, tougher access to credit and more expensive, obviously. And for families, uh, certainly what we see is a further increase in mortgage rates. Uh, not much more, to be fairly honest. The, the rate hikes that we are seeing are uh, headline grabbing, obviously, but they're not generating a very uh, drastic tightening of credit conditions. So uh, because there's so much liquidity in the economy, banks are likely to continue with very comfortable and easy uh, conditions for most of their customers, but certainly a little bit of a tightening. Now, you recently wrote, there's nothing that the government gives for free that you don't pay for one way or another. President Biden just canceled a lot of student loan debt for a lot of people. What's your take on that? Well, you know, canceling student debt has certain elements of merit. However, if you decide to cancel student debt, but that doesn't come also with a vast reduction in government spending. What you're basically doing is passing the, the, the cost to all of the citizens and higher taxes and higher inflation. So uh, ultimately, what ends up happening is that a few thousand or hundreds of thousands of students will get some form of relief, but everybody else will get higher inflation and higher taxes. More importantly, unfortunately, these measures do nothing in terms of reducing tuition fees. So uh, in essence, the, these types of measures, unless they're really well done with a significant reduction of spending and at the same time measures to prevent the perpetuation of high fees uh, are not going to achieve much, particularly for the newer generations. Now, there's mixed messaging from policymakers about whether the U.S. is in a recession. What do you think? I think that the signs of a very uh, weak economy are there. We've seen it in the uh, PMIs. We've seen it in, in even in the consumer confidence uh, surveys, etc., that show a small bounce, but from very low levels. No? So I think that uh, the, the, the economy is not in good shape. The economy is certainly uh, going still uh, at a pace that, are, that allows it to show a certain level of strength coming after uh, a very aggressive 
stimulus plan, but that fades away very quickly. We've already seen it. We've already seen how the government spends trillions of dollars and generates very little growth for it. So uh, citizens all over America and uh, businesses all over the United States are all saying the same thing, which is that the situation is extremely negative for small and medium enterprises, for families, for the average worker. And that is due to bad fiscal and monetary management. How did we get here? How did we get here? First, in 2020, when the government decided to shut down the economy because of a, of a pandemic, uh, the government at the same time decided to increase massively government spending and to print aggressively money from the central bank with the central bank decision. Those two things made a giant increase in money supply that, uh, when the economy reopened, did not stop. And this is a key factor. So when the re economy reopened, we went back to spend a little, to uh, conduct our normal activities. But the enormous government spending and the enormous money supply growth didn't change. Therefore, what was already an inflationary pressure generated by a policy that was basically focused on demand policies in an environment in which there was no problem of demand. We were just locked down. And what ended up happening is that it created an even larger inflationary pressure. Uh, and that uh, is, uh, is being perpetuated. And that's why it's so important that the Federal Reserve uh, increases its rates and certainly that the government stops these enormous stimulus plans that always end with more debt and weaker growth. All right, Daniel Lacaye, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Now, most of the stories you've been hearing about immigration highlight the chaos at the southwestern border. But in fact, the entire immigration system in the U.S. is stressed, even for people who've come to the country legally. Almost half a million asylum seekers legally in the U.S. are living in a state of constant uncertainty, compounded by the threat of persecution in their home countries. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has that story. Many have described our immigration system as broken. While the word immigration brings to mind those chaotic images at the southern border, immigration woes reach further. There are nearly half a million immigrants in the U.S. who came here legally, but have been stuck in the backlog of asylum claims for years, some waiting seven years or more. In, in some cases, they haven't seen their, their spouse or their children during that time, and all the time they're here, and many of them have work permits, so they're building their life here, but without knowing whether or not that'll be torn away from them. Many of these immigrants are seeking asylum because they fear persecution due to their political opinion, race, social group, nationality, or spiritual beliefs. Tiffany Jong, a Falun Dafa practitioner, is currently stuck in the asylum system. She fled China, fearing persecution from the Chinese Communist Party. In 2001, um, my mother was sent to brainwashing center, and the last time she was persecuted in China was in two, uh, 2018. Jong applied in 2020. Her case now on the top of the stack gets priority over those old cases, meaning those who applied earlier are falling further and further away from having an interview. Jason Zubo, an immigration attorney specializing in political asylum, tells me these are the longest waits ever seen. 
and now we're at 400 and more than 440,000 cases in the backlog. And this is, by the way, cases, meaning uh, some cases have a, a spouse and children. So you're talking probably around 800,000 people. And the illegal immigration surge hasn't helped. There are currently 1.7 million cases filed in immigration court, those who are claiming asylum to prevent removal from the U.S. This puts even more of a stranglehold on the immigration system. Fortunately, the Biden administration has hired an additional 80 asylum officers to start processing applicants who filed for asylum on or before January 1st of 2016. But they have a lot of distractions from other types of cases, including at the border, including something called NACARA, which is a benefit for certain Central Americans. And that's fine. Those cases need to be adjudicated as well. But asylum uh, seekers always seem to be the ones who are sort of left behind. So what more, aside from these 80 new officers, what more could the Biden administration or Congress do to help ease this backlog? You know, I think the one thing that really needs to happen is we as a nation need to make a decision about what we want to do about people arriving at the border. Congress members from both parties have told NTD they recognize the asylum system needs reform, but lawmakers and leadership have not yet made any real moves toward addressing the mounting issue. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And over in D.C., all school children aged 12 and up in Washington will have to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And there won't be an option for remote learning. The new policy applies to all public, private, and independent schools. Under Washington, D.C.'s latest school attendance policy, children aged 12 and older must be vaccinated against COVID-19 to attend school. They have to show proof of vaccination within the first 20 days of the new school year to continue learning in person. The Office of the State Superintendent of Education says if the student does not come into compliance within a 20 school day period, the school must remove the student from school until the immunization certificate is secured by the school. When asked whether online instruction would be made available to unvaccinated students, Bowser said the city does not offer this option. The mayor replied, we're not offering remote learning for children, and families will need to comply with what is necessary to come to school. Bowser's administration justified the mandate, saying immunizations are the best defense against some of the most common and sometimes deadly infectious diseases. The new school year is set to start next Monday in D.C. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. Now to college campuses, where students are reporting on others for perceived bias. A public policy attorney says the practice puts free speech in danger. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. There was one terrible pilot. Across the country, at a growing number of college campuses, administrations are enforcing what's called a bias reporting system. A litigator at the Goldwater Institute helped a reporter at the College Fix obtain records from the University of Arizona. The university had refused to release them. The litigator, Jonathan Riches, said the system is troubling. So what is bias reporting? So what we're seeing throughout the country is universities are setting up these uh, teams of administrators and faculty members that receive anonymous complaints from students about um, different issues ranging from politically correct, sort of woke type issues uh, that the teams will then evaluate and uh, many times um, recommend discipline against students and things like that. According to the College Fix report, the university's website says it is committed to guaranteeing free speech and honoring different opinions. 
But Riches said the system is designed to chill speech that the university doesn't agree with. For example, a student reported a professor because the professor had stated that he had never had any negative interactions with the police. And the student was offended by that, uh, claiming that the professor shouldn't have been uh, supporting law enforcement uh, in the wake of uh, Black History Month and some other. So what's troubling about that? The threat of this anonymous reporting, students telling on other students, the inability to confront one's accuser, what ends up happening is students are less likely to speak, particularly on important issues or controversial issues, issues that should be discussed. Um, and so it, uh, at the end of the day, what we're seeing is less speech than might otherwise occur because of the fear that uh, is out there. That he said slightly more than 230 college campuses have instituted bias response teams. NTD reached out to the University of Arizona, but they didn't get back to us before broadcast time. The university's First Amendment policy states it guarantees all members of the university community the broadest possible latitude to speak, write, listen, challenge, and learn. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And on pornography, the addiction that nobody wants to talk about, but it's widely destructive and almost every child is exposed to it. NTD spoke with two experts about the issue. With the internet and smartphones, porn is more widespread than ever before, and many think it's normal. Yako Boyens is an anti-sex trafficking advocate. He says what's happening in the porn industry is worse than many might think. In Las Vegas, uh, over 90% of what would be called prostitutes in legal brothels have claimed rape cases through porn, where they are forced to perform acts that they don't want to perform. Boyan says most users don't actually know what the actresses go through. Force, fraud, and coercion, it's violent. They don't know about the ER visits and, and, and you know, the drugs and, and the forced abortions. He also says the most common term searched on these websites is teen. According to Boyan's, that's because porn addicts go down a dark path. Teen is the most common word used. Why is that? Because evil has no end. It doesn't. And sexual immorality does not have a bottom. And so people on that track, it's like a drug. You don't start with heroin. You start with an opioid and you work your way towards heroin. Well, it's always leading towards prepubescent children, porn with children, sex with children. And J.K. Amazi is a porn addiction recovery coach. He says too much use can shrink the part of one's brain that's in control of decision making and more. Compulsive porn users uh, have less gray matter in their prefrontal cortex and less uh, neural connections. So this impacts different areas of your life, decision-making, um, self-control. Amazie points out that more and more people are exposed to porn. The age at which boys and girls are being exposed to pornography is getting younger and younger. Um, back when I was exposed to it, uh, we didn't have Kids did not have cell phones. <laughs> they did not have a smartphones or access to the Internet. He says a big problem with that addiction is the shame that comes with it. But he points out that it's important to get help. You can catch the rest of these two interviews on The Nation Speaks with Cindy Drukier this Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews@ntd.com. And coming up, as California plans to ban gas-powered cars in the state, drivers in Silicon Valley tell NTD how they feel about the new rules. 
And while most of us think of martial arts as a physical battle, one competition is bringing back its traditional origins. That and more, coming up. to California. Looking to buy a new car? Pretty soon, your only option may be electric in California. The Golden State passed a measure that would ban the sale of new gas-fueled vehicles by 2035. But two automotive industry experts say that the shift needs to be consumer-driven. NTD's Daniel Hall reports. The California Air Resource Board passed a set of new regulations for transitioning from gas-fueled vehicles to electric by 2035. The Golden State's recent ban on the sale of new diesel and gasoline cars and vans comes two years after Governor Gavin Newsom first directed regulators to consider such a policy. Two automotive industry experts agreed that a successful transition doesn't depend on government legislation, but instead charging infrastructure and consumers. It's got to be free market. If the consumer wants it, the cars are great, and the technology is there. But they have to work for them. It does not work for everyone. If you live in a home that doesn't have a garage, whether it be an apartment or a condo or, or even a home, you have no place to charge but in regular public charging. Fix, an automotive analyst, warned that wiring in homes not suitable for EVs will lead to fires. California currently has around 80,000 public charging stations. That's far short of the 250,000 the state is aiming for in the next three years. This will end up being a consumer-led revolution. Uh, once the mighty U.S. consumer gets their hands on electric vehicles, uh, the, all the plans of government and bans and everything else that come along with them uh, will fade into insignificance. Uh, Wheatley, CEO of an off-grid EV charging infrastructure solutions company, says the state needs to expand its current infrastructure to accommodate the increase in electric vehicles. You know, it's going to be a job of work. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, and again, going back to the consumer, consumers are terribly impatient people. Uh, the answer today is no, we're not ready for it. Uh, there's going to be a tremendous push to get the amount of infrastructure that's required in the ground. And it can't all be on the grid because the grid simply doesn't have enough electricity to supply all those new electric vehicles that are coming out. Similarly, Fix says the state cannot handle that many EVs given its current power supply. No, the state cannot handle the infrastructure. This is a huge factor. Charging electric vehicles is a massive hassle for a lot of people. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was a recent uh, study that was done contacting people who own these vehicles, and 20% of EV owners surveyed between 2012 and 2018 said, we're done, we're going back to gasoline-powered vehicles. The policy sets yearly rising zero-emission vehicle rules. Starting in 2026, 35% of cars would be required to be electric, hybrid, or hydrogen. The requirement then increases by 8% annually. The policy still needs federal approval from President Joe Biden's administration. If finalized, Californians can keep driving gas-powered vehicles and buying used ones after 2035, but no new models would be sold in the Golden State. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And as the industry experts commented, the consumers are really the ones who will be driving California's ban on gas vehicle sales. So we went to hear from some drivers on what they think of the upcoming change. NTD's David Lamb went to hear what people had to say. Drivers out filling up their vehicles at a gas station in Silicon Valley commented on the recently announced ban on sales of such vehicles 
by 2035. The general feeling was support for more environmentally friendly transportation, but skepticism about the feasibility of the plan. For the environment, I think it's a good thing, but I think it's gonna it's easier said than done. I think obviously the manufacturers will have an issue and obviously the, the oil companies will have an issue. Lowenson said he had just bought a used car and the fuel type came down to a practical choice. My funds were limited, so I you know I, I got good gas mileage. But I, you know, the hybrids were a little more expensive, so I would have gotten an older car versus, so you know, so I went with the gas-powered. As long as there is less contamination, yeah, should be okay. To the environment. Yeah, to the environment. I like the concept and the, the thought behind it. I just don't see how it's possible. Is my personal opinion. Um, I don't see how California is going to be able to handle that, all that power. Dangerfield added that with technology developing so fast, it could possibly be achieved by 2035. A small business owner who has a fleet of trucks said he thinks it's a step in the right direction, but is concerned about both the speed and logistics of the plan. I wonder how they're going to phase out the gas-powered commercial vehicles like box trucks and semis and everything. Not everybody can afford one of those Tesla trucks, you know, so we'll have to see what happens. It is a little concerning though, so. Drivers will still be able to buy gas-driven vehicles from out-of-state and second-hand. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And staying in California, a former high-level San Francisco official has been sentenced to seven years in prison for over a decade of corruption. His punishment also includes forfeiting a property and supervision after release. U.S. Judge William Oreck sentenced former San Francisco Public Works Director Mohamed Nuru to seven years in federal prison on Thursday for a series of bribery and kickbacks dating back to 2008. According to U.S. Attorney Stephanie Hines, for at least 12 years, Nuru traded his authority and influence for millions of dollars in cash, construction work, travel, meals, and gifts, causing the public to lose trust in government. Back in 2020, Nuru and his restaurateur were charged for public corruption. He was arrested in January that year. Since then, a dozen defendants have been linked to the investigation. This includes former San Francisco Public Utilities Commission General Manager Harlan Kelly and Mayor's Office of Neighborhood Services Director Sandra Zuniga. In a statement, an IRS special agent said, Corruption happens in the shadows, often with the help of professional enablers who perpetuate fraudulent schemes and the corrupt who launder and hide their illicit wealth. In January, Nuru pleaded guilty to honest services wire fraud during his years in office. His incarceration begins on January 6, 2023. In addition to jail time, he must give up his vacation ranch property in the city of Stonyford. After his release, he will also be under a three-year supervision. Moderna sued Pfizer and BioNTech for patent infringement. It claims the two copied technology that Moderna had developed before the pandemic even started. Here's our report. Moderna is suing Pfizer and BioNTech. Moderna claims the two firms stole its vaccine technology. Moderna claims they stole two types of intellectual property. One involves an mRNA structure that is found in one of Moderna's vaccines. Moderna says its scientists developed it back in 2010. Another involves the coding of a full-length spike protein. The spike protein is used to trigger the immune system into producing antibodies. Moderna's position is really quite aggressive. 
in terms of patent infringement on their technology. Dr. Robert Malone is the president of the International Alliance of Physicians and Medical Scientists, as well as the CEO of the Malone Institute. Malone worked on the development of mRNA vaccine technology. He says Moderna's patents are weak. There's going to be a major knockdown drag out fight because there's so much money to fight over. And the consequence may be that a number of these patents end up getting invalidated because they were inappropriately examined and issued because they failed to cite prior patents and prior literature. Malone says this includes his own papers, which he wrote back when he was working on mRNA technology. Moderna says it's filing these lawsuits to protect the innovative mRNA technology that they themselves pioneered and invested billions of dollars in creating. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And over in New York, at an international competition upstate, the ancient practice of Chinese traditional martial arts is being revived. NTD's Dave Martin has more. I'm in Middletown, New York, with the 7th International Traditional Chinese Martial Arts Competition kicked off today. While most Americans think of martial arts as a battle, its history is actually intertwined with traditional dance. In fact, in the Chinese language, the word Wu is the same for both disciplines. The head judge of the competition, Liu Fu, says that the Chinese Communist Party tried to destroy traditional martial arts in China. Traditional martial arts teaches us to do good, not evil defend peace, harmony, and positive flows in life, stop evil and violence. The person must know good from the bad, believe in cause and effect. Modern schools don't teach this. Traditional martial arts teaches the cultivation of oneself to be a good person. We see it in China, where evil people rule the world. There, traditional forms of martial arts did not get passed down. Contestants were judged on their authenticity, adherence to tradition, and their martial virtue. One of them shared with me what traditional martial arts meant to him. It's a divine culture because um, uh, the, the origins of Wushu, of, of um, martial art, was from enlightened uh, Taoist priests or monks or uh, heavenly uh, gods. So originally they taught people to ways to cultivate. Tomorrow's semifinals, as well as Sunday's finals, will be available to the public. NTD will air the finale starting Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Hope to see you there. Dave Martin, NTD News, Middletown, New York. And coming up, what are American voters concerned about heading into the midterm elections? Data from a search engine indicates that China is near the forefront this month, with only jobs and taxes being a higher priority. Fears of a radiation leak are mounting in Ukraine after the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant temporarily lost power yesterday. Ukrainians who live near the power plant react to what's happening after this short break. Midterm elections are on the way, and it looks like China is one of the key issues this fall. Search engine data reveals voters are trying to learn more. NTD's Tiffany Meyer with China in Focus has more. With U.S. midterm elections on the horizon, concerns over China's influence are rising. According to a midterm tracker, China became the third most searched topic across the U.S. early this month adding it to a list of issues that could influence midterm voters. 
The new data marks China's highest ranking on this list since late May, when Axios first began tracking. Data also reveals that the top five districts searching for China were all in Pelosi's home state, California. Axios's analysis says the impact of Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has caught national attention. But it may extend farther, too. The China threat appears to be a hot topic in political campaigns from the UK to Australia. Last month, Britain's two prime minister candidates, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, debated on TV over who's tougher on Beijing. Sunak said China represents the biggest long-term threat to Britain. Responding to Sunak, Beijing said the British politician should not make an issue out of China or hype the so-called China threat. Europe's largest nuclear power plant has resumed electricity supplies to Ukraine. This comes one day after it was disconnected on Thursday from the Ukrainian grid for the first time in its history. Ukrainians are worried about the safety of the plant as it's under the control of Russian troops. NTD's Joy Felix has more. Ukraine's state nuclear company said that the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant resumed electricity supplies to Ukraine on Friday. One of its six reactors was reconnected to the Ukrainian grid. Kiev said Europe's largest nuclear plant, which is located in southern Ukraine, was disconnected from the Ukrainian grid for the first time in history on Thursday. This happened after a fire caused by shelling damaged a power line. In the eastern city of Zaporizhia, 70 miles in the northeast of the plant and still under the control of Kiev, there was no sign of panic, but some people did say they were scared. Of course I am scared. Everyone is scared. We don't know what will happen next. What is waiting for us? Every next minute, second. I've already heard that they're giving out potassium iodide in Hortizia region. I don't know if it's true or just scaremongering. We bought facial masks and potassium iodide, hoping it will help just in case. Then we are planning to leave during the evacuation, because the government said there would be an evacuation in that case. Some Kiev residents said they were mostly worried about the nuclear threats rather than the blackouts and temporary power shortages. I think every thinking person is afraid now. Everyone is afraid, knowing our neighbor, knowing what it is capable of. We understand that there can be different consequences of what is happening there now. That is why everyone is afraid. We are not worried about blackouts, but that the ecological situation may change. We understand that anything can happen because we don't have control over the situation. But if fallout happens, we are psychologically ready for it. But it is very difficult to be prepared physically because it could be life-threatening. Zaporizhia supplied more than 20% of Ukrainians' electricity needs before the war, but now it is under the control of Russian troops. Its loss would pile new strain on Kiev. It is already bracing for a difficult wartime winter of potentially crippling energy shortages. Joy Felix, NTD News. Coming up, a family-owned coffee shop is helping those with special needs gain valuable vocational skills. We'll share that incredible story after a short break.
Receiving a job opportunity can be life-changing for someone with special needs. One outstanding example is Barista Jake in Pennsylvania, a young man with autism and ADHD. The coffee enthusiast is now encouraging others with special needs to join the workforce while spreading joy in his community at the same time. Here's NTD's Flinders Kingsley with the story. Jake's Barista sells great coffee. But the family-owned and operated business is doing much more than that with their daily grind. They also help those with special needs gain valuable vocational skills by running an inclusive internship program. I just like working with my interns. My mom, well, my mom's a really good grade at helping me out. I just really like it. it. It's been a passion. Through his love of coffee, Jake has overcome much of his social anxiety. He's now shining in his customer service role. It's changed him completely. He continually struggled with his anxiety and now he's engaging. He has organic conversations with people. He has chit chat. He'll ask you questions. He never would do any of that before. Everything was very scripted. Tremendous. He's a totally different kid since he started here. He's engaging. He talks to people. He's just very helpful. Always asking questions, wants to help. He has found uh, a purpose for himself, and that's all we ever wanted. Jake says the experience has changed him for the better. I used to be on my iPad and not engage with people as much, and now I'm starting to engage in people a lot. It's been a great passion. He's grateful to his parents for giving him the opportunity. It, it brings happiness to a lot of people, including myself, my mom, my dad, our employees, um, everybody, and, and including our interns. The McFarlands were gifted a decommissioned ambulance. They plan to turn it into a mobile coffee stand for events and for outings to nursing homes and senior centres. The ambulance will be done soon. I hope it gets done really pretty soon and I hope we, um, I hope we expand more. It, it would be great. Jake's mum quit her corporate six-figure job of 30 years to focus her full attention on running a non-profit. It helps kids with special needs get ready to join the workforce. Not just teach them job skills and how to build a resume and what to wear and what to say, but also the importance of being a good neighbor. And a good neighbor meaning giving back to your community, doing volunteer work. The family also run a vinyl record shop. Combined with the cafe, it's become a hub in the community, a place where those with special needs feel safe. They feel very comfortable here. That's the biggest, what I think is the biggest part of helping the community. It's showing people in the community how important and valuable a spot like this can be. Not put people in boxes and think that there's, this is all they can do and this is all they're ever going to do. Jake's story has inspired 12 others with special needs to join as interns. Look where Jake started and look where he is now. Anybody can do it. They all can do it. The business is inspiring others in the community as well. You know, there's a couple other businesses that have, that have been popping up or organizations and groups that have been popping up that will kind of go back and credit our movement to giving them the courage to be able to do it. So that's that always feels really good because you never know who you're inspiring. While Jake's story is inspirational, he means business when it comes to brewing coffee. I finally figured I'd stop in and get a cup of coffee, which is delicious, by the way. The McFarlands have donated over $26,000 in gift cards and supplies to local charities. Flinders Kingsley, NTD News. Today is National Dog Day, a wonderful time for people to celebrate all breeds of man's best friend. 
NTD's David Lamb met with a California sheriff's deputy, who is also a canine handler, to see how he promotes public order and paw enforcement. For National Dog Day on August 26th, most people will think of pets that they, friends or family own. But for others, there's not much time to stop and celebrate. Every day, canines help sniff out evidence that would have otherwise been illegally smuggled through airports, borders or jails. Come on, buddy. Meet Ollie. He's a loyal member of the Santa Clara County Sheriff Canine Unit. Canine Ollie, he actually is an English field cocker spaniel. He was actually, they're bred to be uh, working dogs. He actually came from Ireland and was shipped here and trained here in the United States. Ollie specializes in narcotics and cell phone detection, which could be rough for humans to detect. Since the beginning of 2022, this canine has recovered over two pounds of narcotics within correctional facilities. He's a good boy, buddy. His handler, Deputy Kwong Tran, hit a small piece of marijuana-scented paper on this bus to give a demonstration of Ollie's keen scenting abilities. So I give him the command. The command, just find it, and then he'll start searching. So he's trying to find the odor, the, the odor he's trained on. Ollie came from a long line of working history between his parents. See how he's pointing at it? Tran said if the drug was actually above the bus, Ollie would try to jump on top of the bus and they're trained in hunting. So his nose is really, really strong. So in the history for the Phil Cocker Spaniels, they were used to hunt birds. So like, so him finding narcotics and finding phones is just like him hunting for a bird. It's a game to him and he's it's in his DNA and he loves it. And he'll, fi he'll find it just like he'll find a bird from the past. The canine duo motivate each other. So being on duty is really when they feel unleashed. And it's great, it's been amazing. I've had Ollie for, I've uh, been working with Ollie for four years. And every day, it's like him going to work. He's like, let's go, Dad, let's push, let's go, get, get, your, get your uniform on. It's like the ultimate game of fetch to him. Like, him working is like him playing. It's like playing a game. In California, the Department of Fish and Wildlife cites that a well-trained dog can save approximately 800 personnel hours each year. They do at least two searches per day. And the deputy recalls one memorable moment. During the cell search, Ollie was really sniffing hard on this guy's cane. So inside the cell. Uh, sure enough, we, we search the guy's cane and we find drugs hidden inside the cane. Each deputy's bond with their crime-fighting heroes is a special one. At the end of the day, these dogs are with us every single day. Even when I go home, Ollie comes home with me. So he is, to me, he's like a family member. He's like, the, like my only son. And I remember the first day I met Ollie, as soon as I opened the kennel, he jumped out. I like ran into my arms and I was like, whoa, got to grab him. And he right away, he started pushing me, started working really hard for, from the very beginning. Nowadays, canines are also trained to detect many things like bomb detection, human detection, and even phones. I mean, each phone's built with the same kind of materials, plastics, metals, and these dogs are trained on that. But despite all his puppy prowess, at the end of the day, Tran understands why they're called man's best friend. <laughs> And I'm thankful for Ollie. Uh, thank you for pushing me every day. He's a hard-working guy, and I, I appreciate him so much. And I just... Deputy Tran told me Ollie's sixth birthday is coming up in September, and they're hoping to have a positive experience for his loyal partner. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.